So I want you to grab your Bibles or electronic device, whatever you use, to track along with us as we study the Word of God. I always encourage you uh, to have something with you, whether that's a paper copy of the Scriptures, whether that's an electronic device, something that you can uh, take notes in. It's okay to write in your Bibles and jot notes and all of that. Um, I do that a lot, and uh, it's good. So grab that, turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We will be in chapter 2 today, and as you're finding your way there, I do want to mention uh, to you one uh, piece of um, information, and that is our Care for the Soul conference that we've been talking about for quite some time now. I realize some of you may be new, you're tuning in online for the first time, so check that out uh, on our church website, crossroadsdfc.com. But for those of you that have been around, we've been talking about it for a while, it's because it's, it's a significant investment of time, uh, a, a week long, actually longer than that, uh, of, of coming and, and being part of 30 hours of instructional teaching. And uh, so uh, it, today is the last day for you to register for that. We begin a week from tomorrow with that. Um, and so if you've been thinking about that, praying about it, you have not registered yet, uh, you know, as we talk about different churches here in Revelation, one of the characteristics of you, church family, as Crossroads Church, you are a last-minute people. Uh, you sign up at the last minute. Um, and so uh, we already have, thankfully, we already, praise God, we have 28, I believe, that are signed up for that Care for the Soul event. And I assume, uh, based on history with you, that we'll have a few more today, right? Um, and uh, so anyway, if you've been thinking and praying about that, uh, please, uh, please uh, register for that. All right, hey, uh, we are in the study of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the final book of the Bible. Uh, I want to remind you that the word revelation in Greek is the word apocalypsis. And uh, in fact, if you are part of using the Version Bible Notes, if you want to open up that Spanish version that we now offer, uh, you'll see the title. You won't see the word revelation. You'll see the word apocalypsis. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the word. Uh, we translate it into revelation, meaning the revealing or the unveiling uh, to uncover Uh, And today, apocalypse, when you hear that word, oftentimes it's associated with chaos, with confusion, with catastrophe, you know. When you hear that word, you're assuming something is about to happen that is is catastrophic, that is confusing, and that is chaotic. And, uh, but what I want us to note is that the first century readers would not have understood this as chaos, confusion, and catastrophe. For them, when they understood the word apocalypsis, they would have understood it to be this is the ordered and determined final revealing or unveiling of Jesus, the eternal king. And so I think we would do well to read it this way as well, right? Chaos, confusion, catastrophe produces fear. Uh, The ordered and determined will of God produces confidence and assurance and trust. Uh, Friends, God's got it, right? I mean, this is his thing, this is his plan, and that's why Jesus, in the opening revelation that we see, in that vision that John had of Jesus, the, the, the reigning king, uh, what did Jesus do? He puts his right hand on John and says, fear not, right? This is, this is not chaos and confusion and all of it. This is God's ordered and determined plan of unveiling his eternal son, the king. And uh, so we need to read it that well, uh, that way as well. So in these letters, we are continuously called uh, to keep Jesus front and center. We are called to listen to his words, to repent and remain faithful. These messages are for 
our instruction and for our warning as the church today. Yes, they were written to churches, specific churches at a specific time in history, and the message was for them and the message is for us. What is God doing? He, he gave these seven letters to these seven different churches to, I think, give to us a, a comprehensive idea of what will be not only the struggles of the churches in that day, but what will be the struggles of the church, universal, in the age of the church, right? From the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the time that he returns, we refer to that as the church age. And within that church age, what will be some of the common things that we need to note and be aware of and identify as as our tendency, as our temptation as followers of Jesus. That is what the letter of these seven churches is to give to us. And so uh, we are to study them with a heart of self-examination and a willingness to repent, to acknowledge sin and to turn from it. And uh, may we be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? And so we want to receive it well. Last week, we spoke of the church in Ephesus, that first letter at the beginning of chapter 2. Ephesus was a church that was strong in truth and sound doctrine, but they had lost sight that this truth is immersed in love. That God loves us, and we are to, that is our, the, the foundation of our relationship with Him. We are called to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, right? That is our call to love God in that manner and to love others as Christ has loved us, to love our neighbors, right? As we love ourselves. Like we realize this truth that we hold to is to be immersed in love. And uh, so the warning of Ephesus, what we saw taking place there, they had lost their first love, right? They were steeped in truth. They could, they could defend their doctrine, absolutely. But they had lost sight of love, right? And so the warning of Ephesus we, is this, is that we tend to hold sound doctrine at the expense of actively loving Jesus and loving others. That can be our tendency, right, to want to wanna hold the truth, right? We defend truth, but we do so in such a way that we lose love. So watch for it. Be careful of that. Be mindful of that. Examine your heart. We need to examine ourselves in that as a, a local church as well. Now, let's talk about Smyrna, the second church here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, what I want to do, we're going to look at three churches today, so we're going to be walking through quite a bit, so I need you to keep your thinking caps on, right? Hang with me in it, and, but this, what I want to do is give you kind of a summary of each church. So the summary of Smyrna would be this, two words for each church, and the two words for Smyrna would be persecution and perseverance. So if you want to try and wrap your mind, you know, give your mind something to wrap all of our thoughts around, it's perse- uh, persecution and perseverance. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So there it is, Jesus, right? Remember, these are his words. This is a message from him, and and he's described here as the first and last who died and came to life. That's a a piece of the description that we see in the vision that John had in chapter 1. All of those introductory introductory, uh, uh, statements about Jesus go back to that vision. So I just want to point your heart there. So keep in mind this knowledge of Jesus as we read that he is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. So verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So there's much to unpack in here. We're going to hit some of the high points as we go through it. Some of this is better handled kind of in a conversation, right, that we could dialogue about this, but I'm going to give you uh, some things to kind of hold on to. First of all, the commendation of Jesus in verse 9. It's not really a commendation. It's more of a statement of fact, like, I know, right? I know this is your situation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, There was something going on in the ancient city of Smyrna that carried daily implications of tribulation and poverty for Christ followers. This tribulation and poverty appears to have stemmed from the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So what's going on here? Let me give you a few pieces to think about. During the uh, Greco-Roman period of history, archaeology reveals and historians will attest that uh, Smyrna, which is uh, the current city, Izmir in Turkey, uh, that it was a beautiful city, a large city, perhaps a population of even 100,000, so think the size of South Bend, right? And it was a city with complete and utter devotion to the emperor of Rome, which was not uncommon for cities, of course, in the Roman uh, era. And so as we see, the, 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 the archaeologists have uncovered, there's, there's, it's full of temples dedicated to various emperors. Archaeologists have uncovered coins and statues and so on, um, other artifacts which demonstrate their level of devotion. Uh, within the city, we have evidence that there were many guilds or, or societies, right, of, of trades. And membership in those trades was heavily expected. And part of the membership required uh, that you were to sacrifice to pagan deities, right? There was worship of pagan gods, including the emperor. Uh, And we know that Rome did not take lightly uh, those who resisted declaring that Caesar is Lord, right? Uh, Caesar's, uh, they they declared themselves as deity. And so there was a significant Jewish population in Smyrna. Uh, Along with the Jewish religion came a synagogue a place of religious teaching and practice. Now, one thing to note that is important to this context is that the Jews did not have to go along with the Roman imperial cult. In other words, if you were a Jew, if you could be declared and prove you were a Jew, that you you didn't have to go along with the expected uh, worship of the emperor. And so the Jewish religion was exempt of that. And so the Orthodox Jews who lived in Smyrna, those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, uh, they couldn't stand the Christians, right, whether Jew or Gentile. And so they slandered them by denouncing to the authorities that the Christian Jews were actually Jews. Somehow they were able to convince the authorities, like they're not actually Jews, which meant that if they could convince the authorities that they weren't Jews, true Jews, right, because they thought they were the true Jews, the people of God, you know, because they rejected Jesus. And so if they could convince the authorities these people were not Jews, then what that would mean is that they would then be expected to uh, practice the the pagan worship and idol worship, the emperor worship, just like all of the other citizens of Smyrna. And so there's something going on in this city where those who were 
Jews of the synagogue, right? Orthodox Jews. Uh, they, 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 were, they were practicing Jews in an orthodox way. Uh, and it's so much so that what, what Jesus says here is that because they're the ones that are convincing the authorities that the other Jews, Christian Jews, are not truly Jews uh, and therefore being persecuted, like um, they, they, they weren't of a true synagogue of, of believers. They were of the synagogue of Satan, right? They were being used by Satan to, to carry out uh, this activity. And so uh, they were, uh, the Christians uh, were persecuted uh, within the city of Smyrna. And uh, in Smyrna, to stand for Jesus meant that you would most likely struggle daily to put food on the table for your family because you wouldn't have a job, most likely, because you wouldn't be accepted into these societies or guilds, right, to, to, to earn and make money. And, and so there was much that was happening by way of tribulation and poverty among the Christians there. But notice what Jesus says to them in the midst of understanding that context. He says, but you are what? What did he tell them? You're rich. You're rich. Uh, pointing to the greater value in life, the greater treasure, the, the riches or the eternal spiritual blessings that are true of us in Christ Jesus, that which we have received in Him. Now, we know that by way of tribulation and poverty and persecution, that that has been part of the church globally uh, since the resurrection of Christ. Um, you know, there's been the seasons of it and uh, in, in, in all, all around the globe. It's heavier at some points than others. And, and, and so we know that persecution has been something of the church. So just imagine today, some 1900 years later, right? You're living in a part of the world where you have the threat of losing your life for the name of Christ. So you have the threat of losing a job. Maybe some of you have lost a job or you've not received that promotion, right, because of your stance on, and your integrity of following Christ and you won't do certain things a certain way, you know, that's expected, right? You, maybe you've had some of that, but just there are places around the globe here even today where the loss of life is potential for those who claim the name of Jesus. Uh, there's two ministries that kind of help keep us uh, oriented toward the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the globe. One is Voice of the Martyrs. The other is called Open Doors. And according to opendoors.com, listen to some of these statistics about uh, the persecution that's going on right now uh, in our world, other parts of the world. Almost 400 Christians are killed for their faith every month, 13 every day, right? Just imagine that. Uh, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month. I remember vividly uh, in high school going to the Ukraine for mission right after Gorbachev had let uh, religious literature in and all of that kind of stuff. I had a band teacher at a Christian school who was crazy enough in his faith to say, let's go. And so we went and, and we took some gospels. And I remember sitting with, with, uh, with our instruments. We were a brass ensemble. That's how we attracted people to share the gospel. And, and I remember sitting with believers in the Ukraine sitting in their churches that had been raided. And I remember sitting there watching them play their instruments that they had that, that had been beaten and smashed, uh, and they had to try and reform them and shape them, right, because they were persecuted uh, gathering as the church. And so that this, is, this is what it is. And, and, and there's 772 forms of violence, beatings, kidnappings, rape, arrest uh, are committed against Christians every month. And, and this number, I can't imagine how they try to total this, but their estimation is between 40 and 80 million uh, Christians have been martyred in the course of history. Uh, more than half, catch this, this is the more shocking uh, realization, is more than half were martyred in the 20th century. 
persecution of the church is real, right? We in America have been insulated from that to a degree, right? So, but it's there. And so just imagine, like, this, this letter to the church in Smyrna is real. It's a needed message, probably even more so for us as, as the days go, right, here in the United States. You are rich. Don't ever forget that. That in Christ Jesus, there's no circumstance of life that can rob us of the blessings we have in Christ Jesus. Notice there is no critique here uh, to the people in Smyrna. There is no this I have against you statement. And so let's look at the command. In the midst of their circumstance, what does Jesus command them to do? Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. There it is again, do not fear. What did Jesus tell John in the vision of chapter 1? Fear not, right? So here we have this repeated sense of like fear not. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Um, And Jesus tells them, in fact, in the midst of their persecution, that there is more to come. That the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And there's a mention of 10 days. Uh, Whether that's a figurative thing, whether it's a literal 10 days, we can't be totally sure on that. Maybe they experienced an emphatic sense of persecution in Smyrna there for a season of 10 days. Um, We don't know. Maybe it's something figurative. but, But notice that what we can gather, what we do know is the clear call of Jesus. Do not fear. So friend, our call. In the midst of whatever we experience, do not fear. And he goes further. He says, be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. Not be faithful until I remove this hardship. Be faithful until death. There is no expiration date on faithfulness. It reminds me, as I was studying this week, it it took my memory to, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, we have record of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? Those of you that may not be aware, John was the one born uh, at nearly the same time of Christ, and he was the forerunner of Jesus, as we call him, and he was the one who pointed people to Jesus and behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who baptized Jesus. I mean, you talk about an important figure, and Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 11, like, there's no one greater than John. But what was the circumstance for John? He found himself unjustifiably put in prison. And he's sitting in prison in Matthew chapter 11. The one who pointed people to Jesus in a circumstance arrives at such a place of, 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 of suffering that he's like, man, I, was I right? And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him the question, are you, are you truly the one that we were to expect? And Jesus sends a messenger back, and we don't have time to get all into that. But it was just like, man, here, what, what ended up happening in John's life, his, he, Jesus didn't come rescue him. Like what, he, what John heard was that Jesus was doing all these amazing things. He's healing people, and he's doing these incredible you know, works of miracles and so on. And he's like, what about me? Like he's sitting in the prison. Jesus, come deliver me. And when Jesus didn't, it caused him to wonder. And we know John was never delivered. He ended up being beheaded. Here, Jesus tells those in Smyrna, be faithful until death. And it's not like Jesus does that in a way where he just kind of leaves us on and expects us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. Look at how he was described. Remember how he was described? Jesus, the one with the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus said, yeah, I know. Like, and I'm in this with you. I was faithful until death too. Right? He's not asking them to do anything he hasn't done himself. And he doesn't ask us that either. Right? Be faithful until death. 
So the conclusion of the church in Smyrna, verses 10 and 11, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The only other place that this specific phrase, crown of life, is used is in James chapter 1, verse 12. Remember the first part of that, you might recall. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. He goes on to say in verse 12 that blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has received, uh, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. So James notes this promise of a crown of life. Literal crown, figurative crown, like the, the, the realization is there's life. There's eternal life. 2 Timothy 4.8 speaks of the crown of righteousness. I mean, we know the Bible speaks of the reward that we receive for our faithfulness to Jesus. And here it is the crown of life. And verse 11 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Many of these rewards that we read about, the one who will not be hurt by the second death, we will circle back around to that in Revelation 20 and 21 when we talk about the second death. But but here he gives a promise. The one who conquers won't be hurt by that. You're protected in Christ. So that's Smyrna. Persecution. And perseverance. Maybe that's a message that you need today for a particular reason. The church in Pergamum, here's the summary of two words, conviction and compromise. Conviction and compromise. I appreciate Mark Vrogop, pastor down in Indianapolis, with those two summary words there. And uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Here again, reflection back to the vision of Jesus, the sword, the two-edged sword we've talked about, the word of God, uh, the word of judgment and of truth and accountability, the word of which we will be uh, held accountable. So keep in mind this knowledge of Christ as we listen to what Jesus says. The commendation in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That doesn't sound like a great place, does it? Probably won't show up on the 10 best cities to live in in the United States or something, right? (laughs) Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He kind of reiterates this fact of Satan's throne, where Satan dwells. So what's what's the commendation? Well, the conviction that they had held to, that they held fast the name of Jesus. They did not deny their faith in Him. They held to the gospel, we would say, who Jesus was. They, too, seemed faithful in the face of persecution. I mean, here, specifically, one is mentioned who was martyred uh, in their presence from among their people. Like, this guy died for his faith, yet they held fast the name of Jesus. There was conviction in this place where Satan dwells. Pergamum, the city, was referred to as the greatest city in Asia Minor. Um, 
just was speaking to somebody between services, and they had been there to visit, and they said it's actually at the, at the highest point in that location, and, and it's uh, kind of uninhabited today because of its location, hard to get to and all of that, but here it is. And so whether it's that throne, right, because it sits high up, maybe that's why he refers to it as the throne of Satan, uh, whatever uh, is behind that. Um, Pergamum was a city. Uh, that was of massive influence in Asia Minor of the day. And uh, it, the first temple dedicated to Caesar uh, was there, and also a place of emphatic promotion of the imperial cult. In other words, some of the things we talked about with Smyrna, we could kind of go ditto, right, here uh, with Pergamum. Uh, and, and that was obviously much of, of what was taking place in, in the culture of the day with the Roman Empire. And so what's the critique Right? They were faithful. They, they held to the name of Christ. What's the critique? Verses 14 and 15, compromise. Compromise for the sake of acceptance. Compromise you know, to fit in. Compromise to avoid persecution. There was compromise present among the church at Pergamum. Verse 14 says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Not everybody, but there was some. You also have some, verse 15, who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, we don't have much to go off of to kind of discern uh, what he is referencing here. Uh, what we do know is that it, can, it led to pagan worship and immoral behavior, sexual immorality. But we don't have too much to, to kind of stem from. But the teaching of Balaam, we do. Back in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, you can read that at your own time if you would like. But let me give you just a bit of a snapshot. Balak, who was the king of Moab at that time, paid Balaam, who was the true prophet of God in Israel. Right? So Balak paid Balaam to turn against his own people, to turn against the Israelites and cast curses upon them. And God prevented that from happening. Actually, what God did is he took the curses and turned them into blessings, just like God does, right? And, and so it was unsuccessful. What came out of that was this friendship, right? Friendship, a, a powerful thing, a relationship, a friendship between the Moabites and the Israelites. And what resulted from this friendship was compromise, idol worship, sexual morality. And this led to the a death of 24,000 Israelites, as mentioned there in Numbers, right? Not a good situation. That's Balaam. Balaam, a true prophet of God, turned right against his own people, and God judged him for that. So how is this same spirit of compromise uh, in Balaam present in Pergamum? How had people embraced that? Well, some held to the belief that there was nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. Uh, what harm is there, right, in eating a little meat sacrifice to worship Caesar and affirm loyalty to him? What, what, what harm is there in that, right? What harm is there in putting a little incense in the altar? I can still be a Christian and do this, can't I? I can still be a Christian and do it. Why? Because if I do that, I just show a little reflection of allegiance to Caesar and worship of him, then, then I'll be able to keep my job, right? I, I won't be persecuted, maybe even put to death. Like Antipas, uh, if I compromise some of that and just kind of blend in a little bit with the with the culture around us, right? I can I can just maybe I won't get quite as many comments or have quite as much harsh treatment toward me. Compromise, 
most of you know where this is going, right? Compromise. Compromise leads to what we call syncretism, a, a joining together of, of beliefs, even, even beliefs that at times you look at and go, hey, how can you believe this and this, right? In, in our world today, we see this among the church where we see this blending of, of, of some truth of the Bible mixed in with even Eastern religions and, and other things where it's like, man, you talk with some people, it's like, how in the world do you, do you like package this together in your mind? How does this make sense to you of what you believe, right? There's a, there's a compromise in the church, in what we believe. Christianity mixed with other religions so that neither religion is held with clarity. You know, you sprinkle a little of this, you sprinkle a little of that, and, well, this is what I believe. And by the way, in our postmodern and relativistic world, it's like, well, yeah, I can put this together, and this is what I believe. Now, this may not be what is right for you or good for you, right, but this is what's good for me, and so you can believe what you want to believe, and I'll, you know, there is no absolute truth by which we both should measure our life and that we both will be held accountable to. No, it's like you take what you want, and I'll take what I want. We can just kind of mix this together, and, 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 and so we have this, this syncretism of belief. That is part of our Compromise. We have a compromise in lifestyle, which was true here in Pergamum. You, you, you read about it of the sexual morality and the eat uh, the the food uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, and that's that's a true sacrifice to idols. That's a true act of worship. Because for some of you that know your Bibles, you'll go, but like, wait a minute, isn't there somewhere in the Bible that says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as we don't violate the conscience of a brother or sister in Christ? Yeah, you can go to Romans chapter fourteen, right? You'll find it. And and but what is there is that it's not like like no if you redeem the meat right if you if you can eat the meat with a heart of thanksgiving to God not out of an act of worship to that idol or that deity right no if you can redeem that it's good God has made all things good and our world loves to twist it our sin loves to twist it you know and use it for something awful but if you can redeem that and you can in your good conscience eat that meat that was once sacrificed to idol you can eat it for the nourishment of your body out of praise and thanks to God then you go ahead This was a situation where they were eating the meat in actual worship to the deity. This was idol worship. That's the difference, okay? It was a heart issue. And so we see what it led to, the compromise. And so, friends, we have to be careful of in our postmodern relativistic world where absolute truth seems to not be held anywhere uh, that, that we don't live lives of compromise, you know, we, we can quickly arrive at this, and, and I, I sense this same battle, so I'm not just calling you out. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, man, as we study this letter, we have to look inwardly, and I'm looking at my own life as much as, as, as I'm asking you to look in yours, right? I mean, we could, ask, we could just say, well, what, what harm is there if I listen to music or watch movies that are filled with foul language and that's, that's highly sexualized and is all about demonic activity so that, you know, because if I do that, my friends will accept me and not think I'm some Christian fanatic weirdo person, you know? I still believe in Jesus. I mean, what harm is there if I get drunk after work with some coworkers? Right? It, it keeps them off my back uh, about going to church on Sunday. I still believe in Jesus. I know I shouldn't, but what harm is there in, in using a few choice words when I'm around my family? I mean, they all do it, and if I just throw out a few of them there, you know, it kind of keeps them, again, from you know, off my back about being a Christian and going to church. I, I still believe in Jesus. 
And what harm is there in gathering with the church? You know, just, well, when it fits my schedule. I mean, there's lots of things going on. There's work and sports and hunting and crafting and camping and crocheting and cutting wood and playing croquet. I got on a run of seas there. I just could, <laughs> you know. I mean, whatever it is for you, right? I mean, are we all tempted to, to fill our life with, with compromise and, and, and desiring and spending our time with things that are pleasurable to us. Maybe it's not the protection piece of like, I, you know, I'll compromise so I don't get ridiculed or suffer. But, but what if I compromise because it's pleasurable to me, right? It's something I, I want to do rather than doing what God calls me to do. I still believe in Jesus. I can, I can do those things. And this isn't about legalism, friend. This is about guarding our hearts from a very common temptation to, to, yes, hold a conviction and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and live a life of compromise for the sake of personal gain, whether it be pleasure or protection. As we consider that, listen, Jesus, again, just like he did with the church in Smyrna, Right? I'm the one who died. Like I'm, I'm not asking you to be faithful until death without being in that with you. And, and Jesus says here to us, in the midst of this crazy world that is infiltrated with all of these things that pull at our heart's attention, our affection that ought to be directed toward Christ, Jesus says, I know where you live. I know the context. I know this is where Satan dwells. I know the temptation that is present. Remember, I was the one who went and spilled time in the wilderness and was, was tempted by Satan himself specifically. Remember that, Jesus, and uh, what Jesus did and how he confronted that or resisted that with the word of God? And he's saying, I know. I know it's hard. I know it hurts when people reject you because of your faith. I know it hurts when maybe you, you lose a, a job or lose even relationship with a family member because you, you, you're going to be faithful to me and stand upon my word and not compromise it. He knows. So if it's true in our life, what's the... What's the command in verse 16? To repent. Therefore, repent. That's the only one. Just repent. Turn. Acknowledge it. See it. Call it what it is. Don't hide from it. Run from it in shame. But call it what it is. Confess it and repent. Turn from it. The conclusion then in 16, 17. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I will come to you soon. Jesus always gives us time. We'll see it in Thyatira as well. Remember in verse 12, the way he was described, that he was the one, the words of him who has the sword, the sharp two-edged sword. I will come to them, he says in verse 16, war against them with the sword of my mouth. No matter how secret or subtle we may think we're being about our compromise, the word of God, that sharp two-edged sword, the, the word of the one to whom we must give account, right? He sees right through it all. And we'll give account. Notice the blessing, verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We have a couple of things here, quite honestly, that we, we don't know a whole lot about. Some, uh, they, we will receive some of the hidden manna. We know what manna is. 
you're not familiar with it, manna was what God miraculously fed the nation of Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness. So every morning, this manna showed up, right? A bread-like substance that fed them. God provided. We know that God called for some of that manna to be put in a pot and placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne of God, right? The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God among his people. So here in what Jesus referred to as the throne of Satan, we have reference to that which was placed within the throne of God, right? The true king. We know that in John 6, as Jason alluded to, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, that was kind of the fulfillment of what was the the wilderness man, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Find your, 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 your source of strength in me. So we know what manna is. What's the hidden manna? I don't know. It's hidden, so maybe we're not supposed to know, right? It's not mentioned anywhere else in that way to know. But that's one of the things that's received. And then the white stone with a new name. We know that when we come to Christ and we are brought from death to life, from darkness to light, we are a new creation, the Bible says. right? And since we have a, a new name, we're a son, we're a daughter of God, we, we know that to be true. But what exactly is this white stone that's, that's given to the one that conquers, the one that, that only knows, right? The, the one who receives the stone is the only one that knows? Like, ah, I don't know, but it sounds good, right? It's going to be good. We trust, right, because God is good, and it's that blessing that we receive from him. So we have Smyrna, we have Pergamum, we have Thyatira. There's two words of summary with Thyatira's passion and passivity. Revelation 2.18, Jesus is introduced here in this letter. He says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Thyatira was the home of Apollo, the sun god. And here Jesus introduces himself as the son of God, right? A common name for Christ, the son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet like burnished bronze. Judgment. So what's the commendation to Thyatira? Verse 19, striking similarities between Pergamum and Thyatira. And this is what it says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This sounds like a fabulous church, doesn't it? You should look at that list. Notice that it's opposite of Ephesus a little bit, right? That their works in the last exceeded the first. In Ephesus, we saw like, man, you've lost your first love. And so, I mean, here we see like, yep, we can battle this way of, of clinging to truth and losing love. And we can, we can battle this over here where it's like, man, we are doing all of these great things and doing so with a heart of love. But what are we, what are we missing here? What are we missing? Well, that's the critique Passivity, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Notice verse 24, if you got your scriptures, it tells us that not everyone was tolerating this woman. Not everyone held to this teaching, yet it was present. It was that mixture, just like Pergamum. They were tolerating false teaching that was influencing life. 
Again, sexual morality and eating the food sacrificed to idols, we read there in verse 20. Having a definite impact among the body. But the critique from Jesus is that you tolerate this. There's a passive allowance. There's kind of a looking the other way, if you will. A false teacher, a self-proclaimed prophetess, a woman. I don't know if her literal name was Jezebel, perhaps. Seems unlikely that because by this time Jezebel was synonymous with evil. So that a parent would name their daughter Jezebel, I don't know, maybe. But there was this false teaching going on. We read about the, the spirit of Jezebel, at least, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 16 through 19. You can read about it, and, and uh, particularly chapter 19. But the, the Jezebel was the wife of King Ahaz and a fierce opponent um, to the prophet Elijah. This was the story, you may recall, of when all the prophets of Baal that she had, uh, you know, gathered together in Israel and influenced Israel to worship Baal or Baal, and and they gathered on Mount Carmel, and there were more than 400 prophets of of Baal, and Elijah the prophet was the only one that was the voice of God. He's like, all right, build your altar and slaughter your, you know, your your cow and stick it on there and call out to, to your God and see what happens. And the goal was, you know fire to strike down and and consume the the sacrifice. And so the prophets of Baal were doing this, and they're cutting themselves and all this, and and nothing happens. And and Elijah gets to that point. He's like, all right. And so he builds the altar. He covers it with water. He puts a moat around it, soaks it all up, and and he calls out to God, and God strikes the the altar, right? That's this story. That's Jezebel and her influence uh, in the nation of Israel. And as they were following this teaching, or at least the spirit of Jezebel. There was this, this, this sense of passivity toward sin. There was the presence of sexual morality and eating food, sacrificed idols, as we had talked about with Pergamum. There was this self-indulgence, and it was going unchecked. Friends, that's, that's a battle we have, isn't it? As a local church, to be passive toward sin... To maybe hold to truth, do lots of great things, and to be very active in, in God's kingdom work, but to, to all the while have this, this sense of tolerance, you know, meaning almost acceptance of, of the sin that is present. This is why we, we, we need to take seriously matters of what we refer to today as this, like, church discipline. Like, there's, there's a sense in Scripture where, like, when we see a brother in sin or sister in sin, like, those of us who are spiritual, we are to do what? To go and, and to seek to restore them gently, that in that truth and love, right? Not truth without love, but truth in love, seek to address the areas and manners of, of sin present in the lives of each other. Why? Because we want to pursue the glory of God together. We want to pursue the holiness of Christ together. So, so we take that seriously, as I think about us, I, like there's times we do it far better than others. That's a hard thing. But we can't just let it go. We can't just become passive about it and tolerate it. Because that's not honoring to Christ. What's the command? Verse 21, 22, to repent. Three times. Repent, 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 right? And, and called out to both the woman and those who follow her. Seems like it's why it's a literal prophetess here, right? Because there's those who follow her. There's this sense of it's a literal person. In verse 21, it says, God says this. This is the heart of our God. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. 
That's the heart of our gracious God, patiently waiting, right? Pointing out our sin and saying, come on, repent. Call it what it is. See it as sin. Turn from it. Follow me. Honor me with your heart and with your life. Romans 2.4 tells us the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. That's the command, repent. And so, friend, as we examine this and you examine your own heart and as you, the Spirit of God is your true teacher, is weighing in on this in your life and you're feeling convicted about something, don't ignore it. Don't be passive toward it. Don't just think, ah, it's okay. I'll get by or I'll deal with it. No, like, repent. What's the conclusion? Those who fail to repent, there's tribulation. There's, verse 22, there's a sickbed. There's death mentioned I love what verse 23 says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. There it is again, our sovereign Lord, the one to whose word we will be held accountable, the one to whose word we seek out and understand the things of God, who he is, who we are. And to the one who conquers, he says, I will give authority over the nations. In Revelation 20, we'll see our opportunity of reigning with Christ. And I will give him the morning star. In Revelation 22, we see this referred to as Jesus himself, the morning star. What's the reward of those who conquer? The ones who stand fast and hold to Christ and serve him faithfully. Jesus, the morning star, in his presence for eternity. So what's the takeaway for us? There's two things I want to leave you with. One, I just encourage you, friend, maintain faithfulness in persecution. Whatever that is for you, this is, we live in our context here where this is, this is different. Your workplace may be different than somebody else's workplace or your family context may be different than somebody else's family context. The persecution that you experience for the name of Christ isn't going to look like someone else's. Whatever your context is, wherever God has you in the midst of that, friend, maintain faithfulness and persecution. Be faithful even unto death. Number two, be a people of conviction and discernment so as to recognize, compromise, see it. To recognize compromise and passivity. Repent and persevere in pure devotion. And hold on, right? Because as Jesus said, I know. I know your circumstance. I know your world. I know every bit about it. I've experienced it, and I created it. I know. Hang in there. And maybe that's a message that somebody needs today, right? Just hang on. It won't be long, right? It won't be long till Christ returns our life in this earth is described as a mist, as but a breath, right? I mean, if we're honest with it, our years in this world are short, but a speck. 
in the context of eternity. Hang on. Be faithful. May the Spirit of God help us. Father, as we think about these things, Lord, we appreciate the message you've given to us, the warning to these churches, the commendation to these churches, Lord, of, of what really we are to be about and your kingdom work among us, life and, and, and vibrancy of, of your spirit, Lord, at work among us, in us and through us, among one another, among our community. Lord, we're grateful. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful and to persevere in persecution, that you would help us to hold to conviction and not compromise. Lord, that you would help us to be passionate and, and not passive, Lord, towards sin, but to desire and long for holiness to be reflected in our life. We know that you have granted to us the holiness of your son, Jesus. The only way that we are made right before you, right? The righteousness of Christ is granted to us, but Lord, we want to show that in how we live. Help us to fight that battle every day. In this world, strengthen us by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.